Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Christoph Jans, Managing Partner at Point9 Capital. In this episode, we talked about what Christoph loves the most about being an investor and what he misses as an entrepreneur. We also discussed how back in the day, companies were flying blind when it came to general intention, and we then dove into the inspiration behind the infamous five ways to build a $100 million business post. Finally, Christoph shared how much general attention comes into the valuation of companies he looks at and what are some of the best companies doing when it comes to actually retaining customers. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Christoph, welcome to the show. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited today. For the listeners, Christoph is the managing partner at Capital, a Berlin-based venture capital firm focused on early-stage internet investments. And having made some early investments in SaaS startups such as Algolia, Automile, Contentful, Typeform, and more, Christoph started out his career as a founder himself, where he founded DealPilot.com, which was acquired by Shopping.com, Friendly.de, acquired by German uh, ISP, and PageFlex, acquired by Live Universe. So, my first question for you, Christoph, is what do you love most about being an investor and what do you miss the most about being an entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I, I think for me, the difference is maybe not as big as maybe you might think or maybe as it might be for others because I, I started Point Nine together with Pavel. It's, it's not a job. <laughs> we, we started this firm, so it's very on, it feels very entrepreneurial for us too because it's not only about making investment decisions and helping the, the founders along the way. It's, it's also running and developing the firm. Nevertheless, there are also like big differences in the sense that we are not scaling fast, so we're not spending a lot of time hiring or, or managing. So it's definitely um, very different from that perspective. But I'd say I'm not missing something because, because of what I just said about point nine also being like our thing and our baby and, and the thing that we have been developing for the last 10 years, but also because we are working on a daily basis, like all the time with very early stage companies. So I think we're still uh, quite close to like really the, the early stage action, despite the fact action. that we're not in the, in the driver's seat there. And 
I what I like most about it is is probably exactly that too, like just being um, having the opportunity to work with incredibly smart, uh, ambitious people who come up with ideas that we would never come up ourselves and helping them maybe avoid some uh, mistakes that we've seen elsewhere or um, accelerate their plans or help them increase their ambition further. I, I think I like pretty much everything about it. Yeah, uh, I can see all of that. And I definitely see the perspective as well of this is your baby too. Like you founded Point Nine, and it's it's no, and a business in its own right as well. So it's a startup in its own right, uh, just a slightly different uh, way of scaling and growing the business. But you also recently just closed uh, a new fund as well. And I read the news as well, I really liked, like how you took on the 99, 999,000, like really pointing with the number nine there. Like, what are the plans now? What is this going to do for you as a firm and anything exciting coming up as a result of it? Yeah. So it's been a little while already, but time flies. So we're already ready, really right in the middle of investing of out of that that fund and already starting to think about like what comes after this fund since as you see you basically have to keep raising funds every 2 to 3 years or so so to basically stay in business the biggest change last time like when we raised and announced this fund was the expansion of our partnership we had started the the firm with Pavel and myself, so two partners. And like with that fund, we've added two additional equal partners, so doubled our doubled the size of our partnership. And that's been going like extremely well. So we couldn't be happier about the 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 result of that and how we're working together as a team. And it feels like with the new partners, uh, Louis and, and Ricardo, it feels like we've been as if we have been had been working together forever. Um, I, think, I think nothing really to to point out yet in terms of what might be uh, next uh, with regard to future funds or potential changes. We're really right, really right in the middle of investing out of the current one. Very nice, and like you, you've literally grown one hundred percent though as well in terms of size. So talking about earlier about scaling, I think it's. It is a different shift and it's really good to see that it feels like you've been working all along together with, with the guys. So I'm interested, obviously, today, churn and retention being the topic I wanted to chat to you about. As the first question I had for you is, obviously, you come from this background as a founder. You still are one today to some degree as well. But operating a business and now investing in businesses and in operators, like how has your view on churn and retention changed, if any? And how have you seen the market evolving since you started out your career and then moved into investing? Yeah, it has changed a lot. And mainly, and maybe that's not so much because of the change in perspective from founder to investor and more because of just it's been such a long time. Like when I started my internet startups, the first one in 1997 and the second one in 2005, it was just such a different world like just starting with just the tech and the tools that you were able to use so it was just especially 1997 was just really early in terms of like just analytics so it's like the if you look at the landscape and the tool the tools stacks in like marketing technology and web analytics and 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 even like very specific 
software solutions that help you understand user behavior, address, mitigate, churn, all these things basically didn't exist. So we didn't really have that data or whatever we wanted to get. It, it was a, a big pain to, to get it. So in comparison to today, we were probably flying blind. And also we weren't really that much focused on retention because I think we, since those were con like those were consumer startups and, and although we had some repeat usage, we didn't really think about it that much in terms of customer lifetime value and really very long customer lifetimes. I think we, our assumption was that any marketing dollars that we wanted to spend, we would have to get a return on them pretty quickly, maybe even in the first, upon the first transactions. Yeah. And I think almost everything I've learned about churn, retention, customer lifetime value, and, and all of this comes more from my first SaaS investments, like in 2008 and, and nine, like free agent, Zendesk, Clio, like the first SaaS companies I've been working with in that around that time. And but, but even since then, obviously things have continued to evolve. Yeah. What was the motivation back then as well to really start doubling down on SaaS? Obviously coming then from a consumer background and being attracted to SaaS and then really you've carved out your niche in the space when it comes to SaaS investing. And I think definitely one of the most prolific investors in Europe when it comes to SaaS business. So what was it that it really attracted you to SaaS and what yeah. got your attention? I think initially it was pretty random or luck. Like I, I, um, I, I knew about the very early generation of B2B software companies like, like Basecamp, for example. So I've always had a strong interest in just basically software, like great software just from a product perspective, since that's also what I've been focused on as a founder. And then the fact that like these first companies that I invested in, like Zendesk in particular, were so consumerized, this is what, what made it easier for me to fall in love with them. So it's funny that the reason that, or what brought me in onto the B2B side was that it was looked like B2C, right? I wouldn't have been intrigued by a typical enterprise software website at, at the time. But when I stumbled on, on Zendesk, because I was basically just looking around for inspiration and for interesting things on online, this didn't really look like an enterprise uh, offering. It, it, it already had a, even at these early days, it had a very inspiring like brand. It looked, had a, like the tone of voice, the colors, like we had, a, they had this little Buddha at the time at, yeah. at their mask. So all of that spoke to me as a user and a human being. And then I, as I started to learn more about it, obviously I quickly started to appreciate what an amazing business model um, B2B SaaS is. Um, it's probably obvious to, to the listeners of, of this uh, podcast, so not don't have to explain it in too much detail, but I think it's, it's just very rare to find a business model that is recurring and has super high margins and ideally has a negative churn. Like, I think this combination is what okay. makes it the best business model in the world. And I think that's what Wall Street has been discovering in the last couple of years too. 
Yeah. And the predictability, I think, with yeah. uh, SaaS businesses, like it allows you to do a level of planning that's unseen in any other business, like just knowing what you can uh, preempt in terms of revenue allows you to plan a lot more effectively. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorites, like uh, posts of yours, obviously, and with this in mind is like the five ways to build a hundred million dollar business and other sort of like you're hunting uh, rabbits or elephants, like going after that. What drew the inspiration from that? And how did you bring together this analogy? Because I think obviously, like you said, like Zendesk, definitely, it has this more consumer side uh, to feel. It's definitely, and now it's probably shifted quite a bit in terms of the markup and the customer demographic. But how did you come to this like, conclusion uh, in the beginning and uh, where did the inspiration come from? Yeah, I think there were two specific inspirations for this blog post or broader concept. One was a post that I read from a friend and um, other investor, Boris, Boris Wertz, founder of version one, a seed fund in out of Canada. And I think he spoke about or, or wrote about two, two ways to build a big company, like one being in consumer, the other one being in enterprise software. And then I remembered that like when like some of the SaaS companies I was working with in the early days, and I think the specific one was a company called Property Base, which has been acquired like many years ago, like where the, the salespeople, they were always like using these, like some of these analogies, right? Like when they spoke about customers and like the big biggest customers, they, they were already used, they used to be called an yeah. elephant before I maybe try to popularize the term even more. But then it just made me think like, what would be like the right analogy for different types of companies or customer profiles. And, and so that's how I came up with these um, animals. And it, it's obviously, it's a simplified concept, right? It's, there are a lot of simplifications into this. It's, but there, I think um, it like, what it like kind of stands for ultimately is that you have to get your cucks in the right balance with your lifetime value to build a, a very large business. Because if you just think about like how many of these small customers do you have to acquire to build a very large company? Then you start to think about what sales and marketing tactics might be might be useful or might be realistic for doing that. So I think it's maybe more like something more a starting point for or maybe inspiration to look into things deeper rather than providing any direct answers. Yeah, and honestly, that's exactly what I was going to say. What I love about it is it's such a simple framework and it's a great way to think about your customer acquisition model that you're going to be driving, like a good understanding, okay, this is the product we're building. How many customers do we need to achieve to build anything of significant scale? And then working backwards, just looking, okay, what can we afford to actually acquire a customer? Does this make financial sense? Is this the right model for us? And is this the right sort of uh, market fit uh, that we're going after? So I, I really enjoyed it. From, and for that exact reason, it was just more about that thinking process. Like when evaluating businesses and ideas, it really gives you a strong framework to say, okay, is this something that we can actually do viably? Like, yes, there may be a market for it, but just acquiring customers and the methods that we're going to need to employ just will not be financially viable. So I think it's it, it really helped me a lot as well in thinking through some other ideas in the past, for sure. So I'm interested then as well, obviously you speak to a lot of, customer, a lot of customers, a lot of companies, uh, you evaluate like a lot of opportunities. How much does churn and retention come into this evaluation of companies, especially because you're investing at the early stage? How much are you looking into sort of these numbers and how does it change depending on the stage of the deal that you're looking at? 
Yeah. So for a significant part of the companies that we look at and, and invest in, there is not enough data really yet to draw any clear conclusions. Like um, many of the companies that we invest in do not yet generate significant revenue or have a very short history. So in these cases, we can't really make our decisions based on any real data or historic numbers for churn and retention. And in these cases, it's more just trying to think about the, the potential. Could this be a, a business with low churn or could it be one maybe with maybe high churn, but a way to acquire um, users at very low prices at the top of the funnel to offset that. So in, in many of these cases, there isn't that much data yet. In, in some cases, when we invest maybe in a like somewhat later, like late seed or early series A company, then they have some of the data already, maybe not a huge history, but if a company has maybe been operating or has been live for one or two years, then we'll of course look, look at, at the data and, and then it does play a role. Oftentimes we want to dig in really deeply and drill down into a specific segment of customers, basically helping the founder to cherry pick his or her best customers because the uh, overall numbers across the entire customer base, they, they might not look good because maybe there are a number of like non-ICP customers in there or like users or customers who never should have been onboarded or who for whatever reason aren't the right fit. And it makes perfect sense then for, for founders when they pitch to investors to cherry pick the, the right customer segments and, and obviously you need to be transparent about it, but then there is nothing, nothing wrong with that. And um, like, this is something that can then can give us the confidence in, in a company and an investment. If we see that it's working in a certain segment, and then we try to extrapolate from, from that, as opposed to using the overall average numbers. And then the other thing where it becomes really important is when our companies then raise their series A um, or series B later after that. Um, at this point in time, investors usually or almost always expect a lot more data. And, and so then it becomes very relevant for us and the founders to work together and try to find out like if the company is already at the right stage uh, for, for this type of financing or how we should look at the data, how we should present the data and so on. Very nice. Yeah, I think that there's a few things I want to touch on, but in terms of like understanding who your ideal customer profile is really important. And I got one of these realizations actually working at Hotjar when in the beginning, early days, we identified who our ideal customer profile was. And over time, we started keep kept on revisiting that and trying to understand and question it. And one of the things, and I can't remember who it was, like I think we had some external person come in uh, to chat to us about it. And uh, the notion that, your customer base that you have today is a direct translation to like the marketing that you've been doing, the product that you built, but it's not necessarily the best opportunity that's on the table. And sometimes like really taking a step back to evaluate what does the market look like? What does the landscape look like? What are the trends? Like where is like, where are things going? Uh, and then taking another look at who are your ideal customers? Like how do they fit in with these trends? How do they fit in with the market? Uh, sometimes that's really a much bigger opportunity to go after, but sometimes we get blinded by just these are our customers. These are serving. These are the requests that are coming through and they take us in the wrong direction. I really love that point. The, the other thing I wanted to chat on was the 
very early stage, you said there's some things when we, we question, can these products be sticky? Can they have high uh, levels of retention? What are some of those indicators uh, that you chat about amongst yourselves saying, okay, like, how does this evaluation process work? Because at that stage, you have no data. So it's really just going on instinct. And what are some of those things that you're questioning between each other? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe try to answer that in, in a second. But just to your previous point, I completely agree with that. And like many of our most successful portfolio companies have reinvented themselves multiple times or like significantly expanded their customer focus or even decided to over time almost ignore their original customer segment and focus more on a more profitable one or, or one that provided better economics. And I think in most cases, it was a move up market. I think it's much, much rare. I don't, I can't think of a case of a company where that successfully yeah, yeah. moved down market, but it's very often the case that a company starts with an SMB offering and then maybe at somewhere between 5 to 10 million ARR, it becomes harder to scale that and churn remains relatively high because SMBs just churn at a higher Same rate. Sure. And so we've seen many cases of these that where over a, the course of years, the attention has then very much shifted towards the, the enterprise. So I think that's really important to keep an, keep an open mind for that. So just wanted to yeah. say I agree completely with that. And on, on the other question, I think we don't have a really a recipe for that. I think if I think we, we try to get a sense for like how happy are the early customers, I know could be by talking to them or could be by just talking to like potential customers from our network. So we're just it's I think it would be too much to say that we're really trying to somehow assess retention or churn it's probably more about trying to get a sense for like the opportunity and is there a pull in the market is there other some signs of customers um, loving that and then of course we can think about is there for example a strong potential for expansion revenue if it's a product that may be used by only a few people in a company or only by a, a team or a department but there is potential for additional rollouts and expansions. And then we can think about, is it easy because it's maybe priced per seed and it's obvious that you can add more seeds or add some something else, which is a, is a value metric. And then if on the other hand, it's clear that this product is only sold to very small businesses, then I think we, we know that it's harder to dramatically increase the let's say number of people using it and, and therefore like the ARPA and we have to assume that churn will be somewhat right. higher and, and so I really try to think about all of this but it's not really mathematical yet at this stage yeah for sure it's very difficult I think one of the, the questions like I loved actually came from David Domidon the, the CEO of Hotshot one conversation we we're having at one point and he said the question he asked himself was like if things had to go really bad like we've had COVID uh how high on like the budget list is your mm. product or service? Mm. Is it going to be the first thing that people are going to throw out or is it going to be the last thing they're going to throw yeah. out? And I think mm. that's also a good measure for stickiness in terms of, okay, the product I'm building now, is it something that's like vital to that business to mm. keep on operating mm. running? 
or is it going to be? And obviously, it's not always the case. And there's there's really great businesses that might be on the other end, just because of the sheer volume of the the problem and the pain. But mm-hmm. I always found that as well as another nice yardstick to yep. go back and measure and question. So okay, like yeah, uh, yeah, where yeah. do I believe this? Is? Yeah, yeah, it's probably a classical like painkiller versus vitamin question. And and if it's not a painkiller, it's harder to sell it in the first place, and you have a higher risk of being kicked out if something happens. For sure. Nice. So you obviously see a lot of companies then as well. And having like invested, obviously, in the early days of Zendesk, I'm pretty sure they've obviously evolved quite a bit over time in terms of the sophistication when it comes to churn and retention. And what are some of the, the best companies doing when it comes to actually retaining customers? Like, how are you seeing them investing in retention? And how do you see them operate as businesses? Yeah. It's, I think, a lot of different things, right? Uh, because we spoke about it uh, a little bit before. And like really retention is more than any one person or, when, or any one department in a company can possibly like control just by themselves. I do think it's great if somebody owns it, like in terms of responsibility for the, for the KPIs and good if there is some OKR or whatever goal framework you're using. If it's clear that there is somebody who thinks only about retention, but it doesn't mean that this person can do everything by themselves to really have the impact um, on retention, because it's a function of everything from product and tech to sales, marketing, customer support, customer success, everything ultimately cult- everything ultimately um, like contributes to the the success or the failure, and you can can see that in in your retention numbers, because it's ultimately customers will leave sooner or later if they're not happy and if they're not using the product or not getting value out of it. So I think you can't really, there is no quick fix for this, right? There are many tactical things that you can do and, and you should do it, right? Like when, obviously, like, like the basics, not make it too hard for, companies to enter a new credit card if if credit card is expired or like uh, consider like using a a product like brightback which is a 0.9 portfolio company which helps you as a SaaS company define really smart deflection workflows so if some if a customer uh, is about to churn you can offer them let's say a hibernation option or a discount or something to reduce churn. I think that's all super valuable, but ultimately the product needs to provide great value to, yeah. to the customer. If, if, if that's not the case, then you'll always struggle. And to to to, to get a to get your to really get your head around that, I think there's lots of great analytics uh, solutions out there. You obviously Hotjar like really well, and I think yeah, there are like solutions also specifically for customer success to monitor like customer health and try to uh, detect churn earlier and then try to draw conclusions from it that you should then try to feed back into like people who make product decisions. 
Yeah, uh, definitely. So what you're pretty much saying is like what we, the premise of the show is if everybody's involved, it's really good to have strong alignments, like having own it, someone owning it. So it doesn't necessarily need to be any uh, specific department, but as long as there's somebody watching that number regularly, if it can be a part of the company's OKRs, it should be essentially you're running a subscription business. If people are canceling subscriptions, do you really have a business? So I really love that as well. Like for us, like I think alignment is critical and like having this understanding. I think also then giving ownership to teams and knowing how the work that they do is actually impacting churn and retention is really powerful. So being able to communicate that back and saying like how the little actions you might be doing in your department, yeah. whether it's like sending out an email or talking to a customer, like having a, a direct input metric that you could say, okay, this is going to impact the output, uh, which is churn and retention. Mm-hmm. Cool. I want to ask a question that I ask every guest that joins the show. And so the question goes like this. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. You join a new company and churn and retention is not doing good at this company. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, Christoph, like, we really need to turn things around and we have 90 days to do it. We really need to make a dent in our churn and retention uh, numbers. You're in charge. What do you do? The caveat in this is that you're not going to give the same standard answer that everybody gives that I'm going to go and speak to customers, understand what the biggest pain points are, and then I'm going to pick one of those. And so that you're going to choose something that you've seen be most effective in the past, and you're going to run blindly with it and just hope that it works. Like, What would be the one thing that you've seen be most effective in reducing churn quickly? Well, the, 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 with a caveat, you're making it really hard because I would have said the same thing. I, I would have said, knowing, maybe not knowing much about this company, I do have to understand like what differentiates a successful customer from an unsuccessful one and then try to find out like, why is that? Is it because it's a different customer or is it because they got a different experience with a with the product or is there something broken in somewhere is there something that we can learn from what differentiates the bad ones from the good ones and then try to find more good ones or turn the bad ones into good ones so very hard without that knowledge like in the absence of any additional data let me think i think in the absence of that and really like really only if you really forbid me to talk to customers i i think i would do a campaign to promote annual contracts, assuming the company does a lot of monthly contracts, is because that might have a chance to just increase con- like uh, retention across the board. If you give people a certain discount for subscribing like to an annual contract, and it might be duct taped in a sense that if they don't love the product, then they will not turn next month, but maybe next six months later when they can, or 12 months later when they can turn. But I think for a deeper, for a solution maybe to the core issue, I think that's that would require me to do some of the things that I'm not allowed to do in this thought experiment. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, on the annual, it, really, it would buy you time. Like it's duct tape, but maybe it buys you time to figure things out because I think also 90 days is also a little bit unrealistic when it comes to churn and retention, but it's more just uh, about understanding like what are those like quick uh, things we would try to do. And then the natural answer comes back that it's normally, it's not enough time. Like churn and retention is a much bigger nuanced problem we need to thinking about and speaking to customers is the place you start. Cool. So last question I have for you then, Christoph, is what's one thing today about churn and retention 
that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? I think maybe one thing to point out is, and this is something that I've maybe I haven't learned six months ago, but maybe like a number of years ago, and maybe it's obvious, but I mentioned it nevertheless. I think it's basically just the simple mathematical truth of what happens if your churn rate is not negative. If you just keep churning, let's say 20% of your customers year over year, just think, just thinking about what that means, how many customers, whatever increasing number of customers you have to add every year, basically not even to grow, but basically to stop, to prevent you from, from shrinking. And this is, I think, something that uh, makes it hard for companies or for many companies that do have churn to, to grow beyond, let's say, 10 or 20 million AR, because you just have to keep adding more and more customers just to offset the churn and then on top to keep growing. And I think that's, that it just underlines why it's so important to minimize the churn and, and strive for like negative churn on a, on a dollar basis. I, I think that's maybe one thing to, to point out. And then the other thing I would just highlight again is there are so many great products today, like including Brightback that I mentioned, but also product analytics uh, software or marketing technology that help you truly understand and mitigate churn in, in, in a way that just wasn't possible just a couple of years ago. Yeah, absolutely. It has changed incredibly. And to the point as well, I think for me, that was actually one of the like aha moments as well in my career, like focusing on churn and retention was when we just put together like a churn calculator and we actually have one on churn FM as well. Mm-hmm. If you want to go and input your metrics and understand like at what point do you hit a growth ceiling? And yeah. I think those are one of those aha moments, like when you actually realize, okay, we really need to focus uh, on this now. We really need to make things and turn things around. Otherwise, like the business is going to stall and at some point it might even decline or it's inevitable that it would decline just because of there's not a, a never ending market. Definitely for me as well, that was like an eye opener. Uh, it was just, okay, this is real. Like you really need to pay attention to it. And the earlier you can and uh, the better you are, that also you have for success later. So Christoph, it's been a pleasure chatting to you today. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Anything they should be aware of with your work? Or uh... Thanks so much, Andrew. We're, we're continue to be very bullish about the future of SaaS and, and, and very active. If anybody out there is listening and uh, wants, to, wants to chat or talk about all things SaaS or pitch a SaaS company, I'm, I'm all ears. Awesome. And we'll definitely obviously leave some notes in the show notes. So if anybody wants to check out Point Nine Capital, there'll be links there, but obviously you can Google them and find them online too. Christopher, it's been a pleasure hosting you today. I uh, really appreciate it. And best of luck going forward. Thank you, Andrew. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, 
If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.